Welcome to the Produce Industry Podcast, your weekly download on current events, trends, market reports, and community discussions. Join us each week from Tampa, Florida, as we cover all aspects of the produce supply chain industry. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Patrick Kelly. Hey, produce people, welcome back to the Produce Industry Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kelly, along with my co-host for the series, John Papp of Jack Vandenberg Inc. Today is August 14th, 2023, and we're in episode seven of our new series, all about the global history of produce, including fun facts and stories, when it all started, how it became commercialized, and how, when, and why we do it. The origins of some food extend to the earliest human civilizations. Through the centuries, many of these foods shaped or altered the course of history. In the process, some of them took on a life of their own in religion, literature, the arts, and pop culture. This is the history of corn. Hey, John. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? Living the corn dream, man. Living the corn dream. One of my one of my favorite uh, vegetables, as well as my sun tie. So I uh, got to throw that out there. Might be your favorite fruit and grain as well. But we're going to get into that. It could be, and, and I kind of set be. that up for you to say that. So I mean, <laughs> listen. When I think of corn, though, John, it reminds me of three things, and you better not laugh, okay? Children of the Corn, the movie, street corn, and the majestic field of dreams with Kevin Costner. That is it. Jeez, oh, <laughs> that's it, man. My, my all-out corn references. I have a feeling we were not done with those for this episode. <laughs> There's just too many corn references. In the sake of time, we'll just keep moving here. So, <laughs> you know, with, with everyone in today's world wanting to know where their food comes from, we figured we'd take the time to really tell you. So think about when you walk into the grocery store of your produce department and you walk into a time of cap, a time capsule of the fruits and veggies that were developed some over 7 million years ago. So today we're going to get into the history of corn. And before we delve into that, remember, you can always check our references in the episode notes. Look, corn or what we're going to start off calling maize. And we're going to use those terms interchangeably here because they are one and the same in the end, is really probably one of the greatest agronomic achievements in the world by humans. And it's actually the most widely produced crop in the world today. Now, maize, what, what is maize? Where does that word come from? So maize is actually came to the English from the Spanish maize, which was a barely altered version of that Taino term for the plants. And the Tainos, again, we kind of touched on them in a few other episodes. They were the indigenous people in Haiti. That word to them in their language translates as source of life. So very interesting, right? Because corn, maize, however you want to call it, is actually a pretty big staple food in our lives today. So what is maize? So maize is a cereal grain from a grass species called zia maize. And it's actually botanically a kind of dry one seeded fruit. And each grain of corn is actually a separate fruit. And unlike other fruits, you can't easily separate the fleshy bit from the seed coat, except through a milling process. And that's basically a characteristic of all cereal grains, except for buckwheat. But corn is a grain that is a type of fruit. So corn is a fruit and a grain, but it doesn't end there. It's also a vegetable and a vegetable is actually 
not a term in the botanical sense. It's actually just used for culinary. So it's not like vegetable is something you can describe in the wild. It's a culinary term. So the way we eat corn is a vegetable in a culinary sense. Like, come now, on. I had to wrap my head around that a few times before I shared Before, it. I mean, listen, and remember everyone, John and I look at a lot of different articles. So if you're interested in any of the references, obviously you can check our references at the bottom of the podcast description. But John... Uh, okay. Like, okay. Then why the heck are we calling it corn? Like what, what, like, you know what I mean? Like, why is this thing called corn? This mysterious thing, right? Like what the heck? Great question. Now we're going to get to the next layer. <laughs> so prepare your minds, everybody. So corn is the term. So the word corn is linked to an Indo-European word. There's an uncertain spelling, but something like gurn, G-R-N, which produced gurnom, meaning a small worn down particle. And also the word kurnam, from prehistoric German, which then developed into English corn. Now, the Latin granum, which is the source of the English grain, came from the same root. So basically, this term corn very early became a word to refer to small particles, to small seeds, specifically the seeds of cereal grains. So back in the day, English speakers would use corn to refer to any kind of grain they felt like. So in England, wheat was corn, while oats were corn in Scotland and Ireland, and even rice was, quote, the only corn that grows in the islands of Batavia, which was described in a 1767 travelogue by an English person. So what we call just plain corn today actually started out as Indian corn, but we dropped that qualifier Indian by the early 1800s. So today, Americans, Canadians, Australians are pretty much the only Anglophones who actually call the stuff on the cob corn. Now, that's interesting. Now, it's crazy <laughs> because... And we're going to get into this more, but there's a difference, obviously, yes, in street corn and regular corn and a very big difference. No, but there's a difference in sweet corn yes. versus traditional corn. And even in my travels to Korea, the purple corn, right, uh, that they eat, it's like I said, it's they're not eating it like we eat it here that is just like deliciously sweet with butter and salt on it. It's a completely mm -hmm. different experience. Oh, totally. Yeah. There's, there's many types of corn. The most common types on that point are flour, sweet, pop, used for popcorn, dent, which is used, it's like a softer corn used for soups, and then flint, which is used for food for animals and livestock and such. But we'll get further into that. So where, where did this stuff come from? Where did it start? So archaeologists and scientists have basically agreed at this point that parent for all the maize that we see today came from this wild grass that was growing about 9,000 years ago in Mexico, specifically the Oaxaca state of the Mayan people. And that grass was called Teosinte. And basically, as we've seen with a lot of crops we've been talking about on the series, they were starting to get domesticated uh, by the Mayan people. But the Teosinte looks nothing like the maize we see today. In particular, it's much smaller, has far fewer kernels. You're talking about at most 12 kernels, and they're more spaced out and each surrounded by like a rock hard casing. And so it's difficult to comprehend how this got selected and such. This is what scientists have agreed upon as being the, the source point of maize and actually still grows in the wild in Mexico today. It's considered actually a weed, but uh, we shouldn't think of maize domestication as a discrete event, right? So evolution was a long and very convoluted process. And the final stages of this domestication actually occurred more than once, more than one place. So this Teosente was moving all around the Americas at different directions and was actually being domesticated at different final destinations in that process. So people that began carrying it south to central South America started 
basically seeing different points of domestication than the ones in the north. And while it's descended from Tiocente, maize actually could not exist in the wild today without human agricultural invention because of the kernels are in the stocks, right? That's what we eat. We eat the seeds and they're ca caught in the stocks. So they have no way to self-produce. I'm telling you, this is like, it's it's amazing to find out what we're eating. Like, they, yeah. you know what I mean? Like what we're actually putting in. And I think that that's ready, how it spreads really fast. Right, John? Like, and, and let's talk about that. You know, the spread of a maze in the Americas. Okay. Uh, you know, one of the things that we research is the, as the indigenous people migrated north and south from Mexico, they brought their selectively bred corn seeds with them into North America and South America. Archaeologists have dated the first evidence of maize in the southwestern United States at about 4,000 years ago, right? Not the seven to eight million that we've talked about, <laughs> right? You know, but, but all the way back. And, you know, it is thought to have reached the northeastern United States about 2,100 years ago. So during the first millennium AD, maize cultivation spread more widely in the areas of north. In particular, uh, the large-scale adoption of maize ag uh, and consumption in eastern North America uh, took place about AD 900. And the Native Americans cleared large forests and grassland area for this new crop. Now, it's crazy as if you look at just you know, the United States as a whole, when you, you see corn all the time, everywhere, right? It's a row crop that's easy, easy to be planted in and cultivated. And, you know, I could have another corn reference coming out here, but I'm not going to just yet. But the indigenous people continued to raise corn for specific traits in early America, bringing different varieties with them while they moved to new areas and throughout trade. Again, talking about sweet corn, traditional unsweet corn. Uh, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of different corn varieties. So along the way, they continue to improve through selective breeding and sharing knowledge with each other. But one thing that people don't understand too, is I got to throw this out there, John, is that yes, even back Back then, we were creating a better piece of fruit and vegetable. Everybody gets so mad when something happens like that today and we graft two plants together and we're trying to get the <laughs> best possible flavor. We were doing it back then too, about 4,000 know, years ago, right? So that, that's, one, that's one thing. And then, you know, keep moving through, you go to MILPA, that's the abbreviation, right, John? And I think you're going to help me out with, what was the MILPA st uh, standing for? Well, milpa is actually, no, that's actually just the word. That's it's, it. Uh, yeah, that's the word. See, this is how much I'm learning, everyone. There's, <laughs> so you got the Mesoamerican farmers in this milpa that imitated nature by growing crops together in a milpa, which was a field of maize, beans, squash, avocados, jicama, and other wild plants they, they tamed. Not mm -hmm. cultivated, tamed. Exactly. John, yeah. like, psh, I got taming that lion, boy. Like, taming that. <laughs> Through extensive trade routes, the farming system spread across Mexico, uh, gradually, the milpa made its way through the pueblos of the southwest, extended farther north, the Great Lakes region, and migrated finally to the northeast of North America. So some of the tropical plants of Mexico's milpas weren't adaptable to the colder regions, as you know, John, right? But maize, beans, and squash were successfully bred for the shorter growing seasons and the vital winters, right? Think about it. Those winters are harsh up there. That's why we have so many greenhouses up in the... Oh, yeah. uh, uh, that north, uh, that northwestern area. I say northwest, like right in the middle. So it's not the, I, it is, Chicago's not the Midwest, is it? Is that what mid Chicago is? Like Michigan? Yeah, I, don't, I, I just think of it as the middle. It's the middle. There I has to be a break point somewhere, you know? It's I Middle East. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's almost East, but it's Middle, you know you know what I mean? Any Chicago listeners, let us know what you feel. Let us know. I'd like to know that. <laughs> what, do, what do we consider that? So although most native people grew maize, beans, and squash together, the Iroquois named the system Three Sisters, or Dihaco. 
So each nation had its own legend about these plants. The common thread being that the sisters were very close and stronger together that they were apart, which helped the people survive. So in the field, towering maize stalks provided support for vining beans, which helped tie the stalks together for added stability. Beans also pulled nitrogen from the air and through decomposition, transferred it into the soil, making it available later to the maize and squash. So both of which are heavily nitrogen users. Okay. So the broad low lying squash plants acted as uh, mulch to suppress weeds, conserve moisture and to keep the soil cool. Plus the prickly stems kept up all the little predators, all those little bugs and everything they wanted to eat. So it, it's interesting to say the least is that corn kept spreading right throughout the Americas based on the climates, the regions and where it could be grown. Right, John? Yeah. Yeah. And look, it shows you that they were working in harmony with nature using other indigenous crops to support each other and to build a stronger system. So pretty fascinating to see how they use kind of all the tools at their disposal for that expansion. And look, and obviously corn maize became a very critical part in the ancient Mayan, Aztec, Olmec civilizations from that Mexican region who, you know, let's be honest, that maize was highly critical to their diet. It was for most of them a very, or their top revered crop. Um, so they even developed ways of improving its quality. They used something called nixtamalization, which is an Nahuatl word for steeping and cooking maize in water to which ash or slaked calcium hydroxide has been added. So this nixtamalized maize is more easily ground and had greater nutritional value. So basically it released that vitamin B3, made it more bioavailable and helped reduce uh, mycotoxins. Corn has all these nutrients built in, but if you don't do this process, you don't get that nutrition. So pretty fascinating that you're talking about thousands of years ago, these indigenous people figured that out and that how they got the nutritional value out of uh, the maize. Um, and besides being the revered crop that it was, it was also an integral part of culture, right? So the Mayans believed that they were created from maize. And according to their creation story, the creator deities made the first humans from white maize hidden inside a mountain under an immovable rock. And to access the maize seed, a rain deity then split open the rock using a bolt of lightning in the form of an axe. This burned some of the maize, creating other three grain colors, yellow, black, and red. And the creator deities took the grain and ground it into dough and used it to produce humankind. That's amazing. Holy, when you know what? You had me at the strike, the bolt of lightning. That, that's what you it's had. It's like a Zeus at. feel to it, right? So they're like, well, you just like hired Thor. He came in, like the hammer came down, lightning struck from the sky. And then you were like within the form of an axe. And I was like, oh, dang. If you were going to explain an axe, John, that is the way to explain an axe getting away from no, all this. I don't think corn. it gets more more impressive than that. No. So what happened next? So. Well, you have the Olmecs that was also in that region. So by at least uh, 1000 BCE, the Olmecs in Mesoamerica had actually based their calendar, their language, their myths and worldview with maize at the center of their symbolism. So that's how critical this was. And then, of course, you had all these land races that were created by the farmers that were adapting based to their unique environments, right? Which you touched on, you know, different parts of the world, but we're talking just Mesoamerica, that small section of the world. You had colorful palette of reds, blues, yellows, blacks, greens, pinks, all representing various growing conditions and various types of maize. And they were grown for specific purposes, even back then. So they were used for they had popcorn back there, believe it or not. Textiles, beer. So there's even corn beer, which I sort of knew, but not really. So when I saw it initially, I was like, wait, yeah, that's interesting. So there's corn beer. So actually, many of the tribes living in Mexico and some in Arizona are known to have produced a weak beer called Tiswin, 
made by fermenting the kernels of corn. And you even had some corn beer in the pre-Incan origins in the Andes. Uh, there's some archaeological evidence of that. So very widely used, the, the maize crop, right? Every part of it was being used. Nothing was going to waste. The corn itself was ground into cornmeal, corn syrup, corn pudding. You could dry it out and make hominy, where the dried kernels are soaked in a wood ash, split open. The husk could be woven into mats or baskets to create dolls and other figures. Even the cobs actually were used as fuel to burn and ceremony rattling sticks. I don't remember I, I remember as a kid being in like music class in elementary school, we had the, the shaker corn cobs. So that's you know kind of where this is coming from. So huge impact on the indigenous peoples of America, the corn had. Oh, 100%. And listen, everyone, when we get back from our break, we're talking about maize arrives in Europe. That's right. Maize in Africa. There's a lot coming in. What happens during the slave trade and the American colony? So we'll be right back. Discover Orchard Freshness on Amazon Fresh with Arctic Apple Slices. Arctic Apple stays Orchard Fresh longer than other prepackaged, pre-sliced apples. This means less waste and no more half-eaten apples. Plus, you'll love the undeniable freshly picked flavor. Arctic Apple Slices are available in convenient grab-and-go bags in both Arctic Golden or Arctic Granny varieties in select markets on Amazon Fresh. Packable, snackable, 100% irresistible. JGLC, the place to be, a third-generation, family-owned and operated asset-based company. Throughout their 60 years in business, integrity, reliability, and loyalty to their customers has remained their top priority. JGLC guarantees 24-7 communication with your personal logistics coordinator. They offer competitive pricing without sacrificing services. They operate throughout the United States and Canada. JGLC's customers count on them for dependability and dedication carried out on every order, every time. 60 years of service for all your trucking needs. Visit them at JGLC.com for your custom quote. Are you ready to enhance your skills? Every day we are tasked to make fast, effective decisions to keep up with the fast-paced produce industry. At AgTools, we take the pressure off of gathering data to help make your day easier and more enjoyable. Connecting the supply chain with AgTools is unique, practical, and easy. AgTools can be used from multiple angles of the produce industry, from farmers all the way to logistics companies. We call that 360-degree decision-making day after day. Visit us at www.agtechtools.com to gain more reliable and relevant data to see more, achieve more. And now, back to our show. Welcome back to the Produce Industry Podcast, everyone. It's always great to hear from Dynamite sponsors creating Dynamite content for the produce and supply chain industry. Now we're here with John Papp, the history of fresh produce, talking all things corn. John, welcome back to the field of dreams. No, no other place I'd rather be than in this field with you. <laughs> Listen, then, then skipping down the yellow brick road, because on both sides was. That's true. See? It's everywhere. And we're gonna we're gonna blow your minds even more at the end of this episode to really let you know how we're doing Patrick and John's mind blowers. This is Patrick and John's mind blowers, everyone. Get ready. This is gonna be a hard mind blower episode to beat, I feel like, because corn is really everywhere. We'll we'll get on that. that, that. Do you remember that like TikTok sensation? That kid was like, I really love corn. 
I love corn. Have you heard that corn song? No, I haven't seen oh that. Oh my one. gosh. We're going to listen. Cut to that corn song. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let, let's get past this, John. Let, let's, let's talk about that. Maze now arrives in Europe. Yes. Big, big moments, big moments. So as we've seen with other crops, honestly. So now while it's possible that before pre-Columbian contact that there could have been some maize transported to the old world, it's not really until after Columbus returns that it really takes off. And actually there's the first historical red record actually attesting to maize being in Europe is that from the Caribbean by Columbus in Spain, 1493. So there's actually a letter from a Pedro Martir de Angelieri an Italian teacher connected with the Spanish court that issued a series of letters that incorporated in a Latin work, 1511. And these first letters based were based on the first voyage of Columbus and they were dated November 13th, 1493. And it actually specifically mentions May. So remember, this is the very first letter on the first voyage of Columbus. And this is what was written. Also easily made bread with a kind of millet similar to which that exists plentifully amongst the Milanese and Andalusians. The millet is a little more than a palm in length ending in a point and is about the thickness of the upper part of a man's arm. The grains are about the form and size of peas. While they are growing, they are white, but become black when ripe. When ground, they are whiter than snow. This kind of grain is called maize. So another mind blow there, right? This is 1493, the very first voyage of Columbus. And they're already talking about maize. One of the first things they talk about. Now, some Spaniards were actually worried by eating this indigenous food, which they did not consider nutritious, that they would weaken and risk turning into Indians. <laughs> Sounds funny to us now, but that was... The mindset back then, you know, what you ate is what you became, which, you know, we kind of talk about that, you know, right, what yeah. you put you in your body is what you are. Uh, they just took it a little step. Yeah, but I'm thinking further. like a dragon fruit, like I'm like I'm all of a sudden turn into a Chinese man, like, what, like what or a dragon. Now that'd yeah, be cool. Right. Like last time I yeah. ate that spider roll and, you know, for sushi, I didn't turn into Spider-Man. <laughs> No, I don't think so. Uh, but but beyond all those concerns, and maybe that's his testimony in maize, there is still good evidence that the white Caribbean fl flint corn was still grown near Seville in southern Spain in 1494 AD, so a year after Columbus's return. And so from Spain, maize was spread throughout Italy, which a lot of Italy was actually Spanish territory at that time in the 1500s, and it became a staple part of the Italian diet in the form of polenta. I didn't know what polenta was before this, but apparently it's a dish of boiled cornmeal that was historically made from other grains in that area before maize uh, was introduced. Now, by 1554, there was an extensive culture of maize in northern Italy. There was even an image of maize that also became prevalent in art and the entire plant was actually painted in venice at about 1540 in the palazzo grimani and obviously our listeners can't see us but you can see my notes here patrick you can see that image and it's pretty fascinating fresco of a ton of corn plants on the ceiling of this palazzo you know what's crazy is everyone in and we'll put this in the notes maybe in the picture if we can add that john is that I had no idea what I was looking at until you just explained it to me. I literally was like, John just sent me a picture of nothing because it, it's it, now that I can, like, I got to twist it, you know, turn it a little bit. You can actually yep. see every aspect of the corn now. It's amazing. This is from 1540. So you're talking about maybe 50 years after the Europeans Ooh. learned about corn. So fascinating. Now, while Caribbean tropical maize was likely not adapted to cultivation beyond the warm regions of South Southern Europe, because remember, maize in the Americas was evolving based on, on environments. So its cultivation in Northern Europe, though, 
had been unambiguously reported since 1539 in Germany. So this suggests two things, either a rapid expansion from the Southern Europe accompanied by an adaption to the low temperatures or the existence of a second distinct introduction of maize pre-adapted to the temperate climates. Web historians and archaeologists found that, that traditional land races from Northern Europe are actually related to the North American Northern Flint varieties. So that's how you had the different corns in the different parts of Europe going on. Now, despite its considerable productivity in comparison with wheat, because it has a shorter growing season, pretty adaptive to marginal environments, it was really seen as a foodstuff fit only for animals and the poorest of peasantry. So pretty similar to what we saw with potatoes, right? And so maize grew in places basically unsuitable for tubers and grains, and sometimes gave tour even three harvests a year. And it provided a level of famine resistance, mainly in Southern Europe. Again, some parallels there with uh, the potato. But eventually, maize did become a popular food in Europe, and is actually evidenced by two Italian doctors and naturalists from that period of the uh, latter end of the 16th century, where they noted that pellagra, again, a, a disease I wasn't aware of, but it's a disease due to the deficiency of niacin, that vitamin B3 we were talking about, which was increased due to the exclusive consumption of maize by the poor. So remember, without doing that proper nixtamalization of the corn, you don't unlock all the nutrients of the corn. So they were just eating corn raw, if you will, or not through this cooking or alteration process. And so people were eating so much corn without doing that, that they were actually becoming sick with this pellagra disease. Uh -oh. um, just shows you again how much corn they were actually eating. Uh, but anyway, so the, the spread of corn was through the old world pretty remarkable. And it wasn't the only place it was expanding, of course. It also ended up going into Indonesia in 1496, along with India, the Philippines, Southeast Asia, China, probably most impactfully into Africa. It got into Africa through Portuguese traders and slavers in about 1550. And Portuguese were using maize to supply their trading force uh, because you know it was an easy crop. It could be stored. And inevitably, you know, African farmers got their hands on this crop and they said, wow, this is pretty great. It's high energy yields. It's low labor requirements and has a short growing season. Great. It's not necessarily as drought resistant as other staple foods. It does mature early, has high calories, is easy to prepare. And this enabled it to really expand quickly within Africa and of course around the world. The adoption of maize in Africa actually triggered a dramatic social and cultural transformation. It provided a level of surplus of food that really booms the population in Africa. And so there's two big moments or impacts that that maize really had the African subcontinent. So you, the first one we're gonna touch on real quick is political consequences, right? So after harvest, maize spoils more slowly than traditional staples on African farms. So Africa at this time had bananas, sorghums, millets, yams, but with maize, you had longer shelf life, especially once it was ground into meal and that favored the centralization of power, right? Food is power. If you control the food, you have the power. And this enabled yeah. rulers in Africa to store more, more food for longer periods of time and give it to their loyal followers and deny it to others. So again, power of food. Now, previously, without these long-lasting foods, Africans found it very hard to build the states and hard to still to project military power over, over spaces. So what we started to see now with the emergence of corn agriculture in the 17th century, you had births of kingdoms in, in Africa that didn't exist before, like the Asante kingdom, which centered in modern day Ghana. They developed a supply system for feeding far-flung armies of conquest using cornmeal, which canoes, porters, or soldiers could carry over great distances. And this logistical capacity helped the Asante to become an empire in the 18th century. And to the east of the Asante, expanding kingdoms such as Dahomey and Ayo, 
also found corn useful in supplying these armies on the campaign. Pretty fascinating to see the impact that corn had. And just for context, you know, the Asante were a very formidable <laughs> empire. They actually defeated the British army at one point in time. I mean, they were eventually obviously conquered, but they had a run there and gave a run for the money for the British army. That's the, the political consequence, but probably the more uh, detrimental impact was the slave trade. So we probably don't necessarily associate corn with slave trade, but the productivity again and the efficiency of maize and its low production and transportation costs made it a cheap food for slaves captured and held by the Europeans. And slaves needed food, okay, because they're property. You know, it's disgusting to talk about like this, but slaves were property for the Europeans and they had to take care of the property and they needed to eat, right? So on their long walks across the Sahara to North Africa, because remember, a lot of these slaves were also coming from inner parts of Africa or from the Atlantic coast and route to the Americas, they used corn. Corn further eased the slaves trade's logistical challenges by making it feasible to keep legions of the slaves fed while they were clustered into these barracoons before slavery shipped them across the Atlantic. And there's some interesting statistics here that actually says that following the introduction of maize, a 1% increase in maize suitable land is associated with a 0.025% increase in population density and a 0.024% increase in slave exports. Okay, small percentages, but these estimates implied that the introduction of maize during the Colombian exchange completely reshaped colonial Africa. For the average country, nearly 22% of the population growth over the period of 1600 to 1900. That's what maize contributed to. And 6% of the increase in slave exports at the height of the slave trade could be attributed to the introduction of maize. So big impact on the African subculture. And it continues today, sadly. Maize has displaced a lot of indigenous crops that were higher in nutrition in, in Africa, so sorghum, millet, and yams. And maize alone is not very nutritious, especially the white maize variety, which is particularly popular in the sub-Saharan Africa. It's very filling, but lacks many of the essential nutrients that help young bodies and minds develop. So stunting is a serious health problem for individuals and economies in Africa, which obviously robs those people of their full potential productivity and development. And it's no coincidence why we see this association with the prevalence of chronic child malnutrition with extreme poverty and heavy reliance on a single crop like maize. So his description of it is, is very appropriate, I feel like. His name was Arturo Warman, and he called maize a botanical bastard. The reason why he called it a botanical bastard is because on one hand, it increased population and life expectancy on the poor. But on the other hand, it generated wealth for European landowners, shopkeepers, mm. moneylanders, money overlords. So it's, it's a difficult history corn for the for the people in africa oh man yeah and it's a touchy subject right and and slavery always is the history in itself is always something to grasp and even talking about the fresh you know history of produce you know what i mean i mean even that itself you know learning these things it's, it's tough to to swallow literally especially if it's corn yeah, yeah. so i mean what about maize in the american colonies everyone so now we're moving from europe over to the americas and you know corn also played an important role in the beginnings of the united states as a food source to early colonists it is said to have been consumed at the first thanksgiving in 1621 by residents of the Plymouth Colony. The British imported their staples of wheat, barley, oats, and rye, but these crops did poorly in their new environment. So some settlements were almost wiped out by starvation. The survivors realized that they needed to grow what had proven to sustain an entire continent. Well, guess what that was, John? Yeah. Hey. The surprise there. Right? So in the fall of 1621, the colonists' first corn harvest was a major success, providing them with enough food to make it through the next winter. 
right? So the Wampanoag Indians and the colonists of Plymouth shared a feast that today is widely viewed as the very first Thanksgiving in the colonies of America. This three-day-long fall festival celebrated their bountiful harvest and alliance that would last for over 50 years. And if you go back to the history of Fresh Produce you know, series, I believe there probably was some other items in there like citrus that we know that was in part of this, right? Citrus was one of those main items you saw throughout the years, right? There's so much that goes with that history and what they were doing. So maize, Z-maize, at the time of the pilgrim's arrival was very different from what we grow today. It came in an assortment of colors like white, yellow, red, light white, uh, and blue, and a wide variety of shapes and sizes, easily stored and preserved. It was an essential crop for Native Americans, John. So as we move into today, maize is processed into a a dizzying array of consumer products ranging from corn on the cob, popcorn, cornstarch, corn oils, automobile fuel, such as ethanol, gasol, and alcoholic beverages, including corn, beer, and whiskey. Right, John? So there's a lot that's going into today. And within the United States, the usage of maize for human consumption constitutes only around 140th of the amount grown in the country. In the United States and Canada, maize is mostly grown to feed livestock, as forage, silage made by fermenting, uh, you know, chopped green stocks or even grain, right? So it's crazy to someone who eats corn like once to, once a week. I can't believe it's used for much more than... than one fortieth, like that's, right? that's crazy. Only and, one fortieth. And it is. And, you know, corn ethanol is ethanol produced from corn biomass and is the main source of ethanol fuel in the United States, mandated to be blended with gasoline in the renewable fuel standard. So what is that though? The renewable fuel standard, the US policy originated in 2005 requiring transportation fuel sold in the US to contain a minimum volume of renewable fuels revolutionized corn demand. So in 2005, only 17.5% of the domestic supply of corn was used as alcohol for fuel. Today, approximately 45% of the U.S. corn croplands are used for ethanol production. See, that's why I was telling you, corn, we're literally touching corn every day when we drive our car. Every single day. So what's next? What's next? How how's how else is this plant maize maize plant used today? So like you kind of touched on, Patrick. So we have the embryo, which is used for cornstarch. Corn the grain is used for alcoholic beverage. Stalks are used for paper and yarn. The pith is used for light packing material. The inner husks for cigarette papers. And the cobs are used for fuel, explosives, plastics, synthetic rubber, and nylon. This is all coming from this plant that started off as a wild grass in a state of Mexico 9,000 years ago. And it's still playing a critical function, you know, not just globally, but here in the United States, which is really, you know, very close to the origin point of, of this crop. And it's still such a critical point to everything that we consume and do today. In fact, you wouldn't think of this either, but corn futures are the world's most liquid agricultural derivative. Now, I'm not a big stock guy, but apparently the average of daily volume exceeds about $400,000 in the second quarter of 2023. It's traded and it's an integral in today's economic society. And what we've also seen in more recent times, events, political events that have been tied back to corn. In 2012 or 15, I believe it was, there were some Chinese nationalists uh, with, uh, I believe it was a seed company that came to the US trying to basically grab American corn seeds and bring it back to China under the assumption that they were having trouble with the corn yields in China, trying to feed their booming uh, population. And 
America. So the America, the FBI actually apprehended these folks and took away their seeds. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about here. I mean, th- this corn is is such a even a political tool as it is right now. Ukraine, what we're seeing with Ukraine today, the conflict over there, corn is a big crop globally as a percentage from Ukraine. So I think Ukraine is today. I think eighth in the world. And I think Russia is probably 11th in the world in terms of total output of maize. And together they would be number five in terms of volume. So we're seeing direct impacts to our economies, global economies related to corn again, because obviously with a conflict like that, you have less outputs of corn going out. And as you see, corn is touching a lot of points of us from fuel to less so actually foodstuffs, but livestock. So these all have a direct impact on today's world. And it's all from this simple plant Maze. <laughs> came to us. Yeah. All, all from maize, all from maize. So, you know, obviously we could talk, you know, we could probably do multiple episodes on all these very intricate specific events that we've touched on, say, from the slave trade to the Ukrainian conflict to all these different things around maize. But I think the takeaway here is that we can see that once again, a crop that seems so simple to us when we walk into our food stores and so accessible is such, it's so steeped in history and has made such an impact on a cultural, societal, and political level, even to today, and will probably continue to do so. Well, everyone, as we conclude this history lesson on corn, it is important to know when you head into your local grocery store and pick up a fresh piece of corn, that's right, corn on the cob, or pre-packaged corn, you are picking up a relic in time to enjoy for the day. Well, that's our show, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Produce Industry Podcast with Patrick Kelly. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Anchor to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Produce Industry Podcast. Until next time, see you in the fields or on the horizon. 